0: podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 1015 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. Well, if you have your Bibles, I would be glad for you to grab those and turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 14 is where we're going to be today. Uh, For those of you who brought your own Bibles, that's great. If you didn't, there should be a hardback black one like this in a seat back near you. And if you're looking for Acts chapter 14, you're looking for page 868, 868. In just a moment, I'll begin reading from verse 21. And Lord willing, we'll get to the end of the chapter today, 21 to 28. But I want to start by asking you some questions. I want to ask you, what most attracts you in the world today what what uh, attracts most of your attention what news headlines are you most likely to click when you see them how closely are you watching the latest fed decision or uh, the most recent stock market movements how are you how much do you really know about what's happening in russia or ukraine has the rising cost of everything put you in a financial pinch Are you most concerned about health care or social and cultural decline, the price of gas or the next political election? Or maybe your interests often lead you to escape reality rather than to try to engage it. How much time did you spend last week watching mindless television or movies? How much do you know about the recent celebrity courtroom drama Johnny Depp and Amber Heard? How much time did you devote to the latest Twitter controversy or simply scroll through Facebook or Instagram? How many hours did you waste in the last several days playing uh, your favorite game on your phone or your Xbox or your PlayStation? Uh, Don't lie. Remember, these things keep tabs on how much time you spend on every single one of those devices. If you're like me, then you might easily be distracted by the urgent. The urgent by the inconvenient, by the useless but interesting. We aren't all attracted to the same distractions, and we don't all have the same interests, but we are all sinners. Prone to be consumed by those things that keep our attention and focus on this world and selfish interests. Our passage today, Lord willing, will challenge us to set our minds on something that may seem far less interesting than any of the topics i've just mentioned but after an honest assessment and a little basic introspection i pray that our passage today will beckon us to give ourselves to the sorts of interests and activities that the worldly people around us will reject as unimportant and out of step with modern culture our passage picks up in the middle of a story already in motion if you were here whenever we last studied the, la- the uh, last chapter and a half or so of the book of Acts, then you might recall that Parna- Paul and Barnabas had been on a missionary journey sent out from the church of Antioch in Syria, not to be confused with the Antioch in Pisidia, a different one, which both will be brought up uh, during our passage today. But the leaders of Antioch in Pisidia, after Paul and Barnabas had preached the gospel there, had kicked them out. And then when they went on to the next town to Lystra to Iconium they uh, there was a murderous plot against Paul and Barnabas and they barely escaped before it was unleashed upon them and then finally in Lystra Paul was stoned to death or so the mob thought they at least left him for dead but after this Paul and Barnabas had simply carried on with their missionary task of preaching the gospel in town after town and they went on to the next town to Derby, and that's really a summary. I've just given you a fast summary of Acts chapter 13, starting in verse one down to 14 verse 20, which is right before our passage here today. And our passage recounts Paul's and Barnabas's last stage, their final stage of the missionary journey and their return home. As is our tradition, let's stand together as I read the primary passage for the for today. I'll read again from Acts chapter 14, beginning with verse 21 down through verse 28. When they had preached the gospel to the city, to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adaliah. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. And now he had opened the door, a door of faith, to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Thank you, God, for your word. You can all be seated. Uh, For those of you who like to take notes, the main idea or main point for today is that uh, trying to bring all of this uh, this really brief passage together is to say that the mission of the local church is bigger than any one church. It often seems slow and mundane. It's interested in stuff that uh, is not On the surface, very interesting. And Christians should expect to persevere in it through much hardship. If that's kind of lengthy for you and you're having trouble writing all that down, don't worry. It is in your bulletin on the inside right-hand flap. So feel free to return there as you like. The points for today are three. uh, Two longer points and one very short point. Uh, The first two are the longer ones, strengthening the disciples, looking at verses 21 and 22. Secondly, fulfilling the mission, verses 23 to 26, especially focusing on verse 23. And then third and finally, very briefly, in the closing portion of today's sermon, will be celebrating the work of God together, looking at verses 27 and 28. Let's go ahead and dive in. Back up there to verse 21 and see how strengthening the disciples plays such a a prominent role in our passage here this morning. Strengthening the disciples. Verse 21 says that Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel in Derby, that next town, in their missionary effort. And that they made many disciples there. This was the same thing they'd been doing in other towns along the way. But Luke doesn't tell us hardly anything about what happened in Derby. Instead, what Luke does is kind of mention Derby in passing and then turns the reader's attention to a couple of important details about the conclusion of the missionary journey. And the conclusion of the missionary task and the journey back home. We're told in verse 21... After they preached the gospel in Derby and made many disciples, they, Paul and Barnabas, returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. Now, I wish I had time this morning to think about with you, or at least to speculate for a little while on what that discussion might have sounded like between Paul and Barnabas and any other of their traveling buddies. So let me get this straight, Paul. You want to go back to those towns that just formed a traveling mob in order to chase you down and kill you. You want to go back to those places where those folks live? Yeah, yeah, that's what I want to do. Just imagine that conversation. But Luke doesn't tell us anything about that. And we have a lot to cover, so we're just going to have to press on. In verse 22, Luke does tell us what Paul and Barnabas did in each of those towns as they traveled back home. They, Paul and Barnabas, strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging or exhorting, as the King James says exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations or persecutions, as the new uh, um, English text, uh, the NET says, uh, or hardships, the NIV, uh, we must enter the kingdom of God. I want to note here two important points as we consider this particular passage. One, the strengthening of the disciples is an essential feature of the Great Commission. And two that there's a distinct interplay between tribulation and encouragement to continue. And that this is a basic expectation, I believe, for Christian living. So firstly, and this is going to be the lengthier subpoint underneath point one for those of you who like to take m- meticulous notes. Probably for engineers' minds, it helps really, really well. So you're welcome, Barry. First, the essential activity of strengthening disciples in the overarching task of participating in the Great Commission. Great commission is the big task. Strengthening the disciples is an essential aspect of it. The book of Acts essentially is the story of how the disciples of Jesus Christ understood and obeyed the great commission. We've already noted the similarities between the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 28, and the great commission we find there. And Jesus giving that same sort of commission to his disciples at the opening of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. In both places, Jesus commissioned his disciples to, To bear witness to the gospel, to call sinners to repentance and to faith. But in Matthew chapter 28, the end of Matthew's gospel, this is sort of the expanded version of the commission. And there it includes baptizing new converts into fellowship with the existing disciples and also teaching all followers of Jesus how to live in obedience to him. So make disciples preach the gospel, baptize those who are converted into fellowship with the other disciples who are already there, and now teach them how to walk this out living and following the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, up to this point in the book of Acts in our study through, the gospel had been proclaimed in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and now Paul and Barnabas were taking it to the ends of the earth. That's kind of where we are in the unfolding of the storyline of Acts. And this was exactly how Jesus had commissioned his disciples to do this. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Believers had been baptized and added to local churches. Acts chapter 2 verse 41, 47. Acts chapter 11 verses 21 to 24. The number of disciples had multiplied. This happens a number of times throughout the book of Acts. And the church in Antioch even had enough resource, including both leaders and finances, to send off Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey two of their best leaders, in order to see Gentiles converted beyond the borders of Antioch. But is evangelism and conversion, something we've been seeing happening again and again throughout the book of Acts, is the increasing number of baptisms and church members, is that the end or even the primary ambition of missionary work? In other words, is the Great Commission only or even primarily about Counting heads. Some of you already know that the evangelical movement in America over the last 150 years or so has seemingly become far more interested in numbers and far less interested in churches and souls. The Southern Baptist Convention, the convention of churches of which we are a part, is a perfect example of just this emphasis on numbers. And each year that I've attended the annual Southern Baptist Convention meeting, I've heard uh, reports on missionaries and uh, church evangelism that sound a whole lot like corporate marketing uh, statistics uh, than uh, how a church is doing. In the earliest days of the Southern Baptist Convention, though, this was not so. It didn't take long, though, for this National Convention of Cooperating Baptist Churches to become what really, it seems to me, is a massive numbers report each year. At the second national meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, which met in Charleston, South Carolina during the last weekend of May, 1849. So almost 173 years ago, uh, almost within a week of that. A few missionaries offered a report on their efforts among the people near Monrovia. This was just one of the reports uh, that I pulled out of the minutes from that meeting. Monrovia is the capital city of Liberia, just off the western coast of Africa. And here's what the missionary report sounded like in 1849. The church here is moving onward and is in a peaceable state at present. But like others, she has had wars without and fightings within. Her present number is 44, besides two candidates for baptism. They have not as yet any permanent house for worship. The male members are 21 in number, including the old and decrepit ones. And they have made an effort to build but I fear that they will not be able to complete it for some time. Brother Day has authorized me to pay towards it a hundred dollars, but I wish the amount could be a little increased so that I might have the house built speedily as our present one is too small and incommodious. I can only imagine what it might have been like. Think about how that report came. Just 26 years later, so we're talking 1875 now, The missionary labor for the year was recorded. Again, Southern Baptist Convention, just 26 years later. This is how it was recorded then. During the year, 51 missionary agents have been under appointment. The result of those labors is as follows. Weeks of labor performed, 1,810. Sermons and addresses made, 4,682. Religious visits to families, 5,679. Prayer and other meetings attended, 2,363. Miles traveled in performance of labor, 78,170. Total baptisms, 1,045. Pages of religious tracts distributed, 25,755. Number of churches and stations supplied by missionaries, 204. Note the significant difference between those two reports. As the years passed the Southern Baptist Convention has only become more of a statistics reporting and numbers-centered cooperative. In the Southern Baptist Report from 1900, the annual meeting included percentages, a 25% increase there, a 50% increase here. In the report in 1926, there was a local Baptist association in Mexico, it it was said, that they employed a professional evangelist who testified to no less than 67 professions of faith in just the month of December. In 1950, the Home Mission Board reported that the SBC missionary effort had, in all the time of its existence since 1845, finally reached over one million baptisms. And in 25 years later, in 1975, the Home Mission Board celebrated another fruitful year in evangelism. They reported for the fourth straight year, the total number of baptisms exceeded 400,000. Brothers and sisters, I believe that this sort of numbers-focused success measurement is like a virus that destroys ordinary evangelism, church planting, and discipleship. Statistics-based measurements on the back end provoke commercial And pragmatic methods on the front end. This has taught generations of evangelicals to think of evangelism as a program. Of discipleship as separate from conversion. Of missionaries and pastors as professional Christians. And of the ordinary means of grace as too slow and outdated. Because how else can you produce such marvelous statistics? Many of us can attest to counting lots of heads over the years, baptisms, church members, decisions for Jesus. But but now some of us may be wondering, where in the world are the souls of those heads we once counted? Paul and Barnabas were not interested in merely counting heads. They returned to the towns where they'd been at work. And they strengthened the souls of the disciples. Verse 22. And this same sort of strengthening or establishing or firming up of disciples and churches is a consistent refrain throughout the book of Acts. After the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, which Lord willing, will study next week. Two messengers carried an important letter to Antioch. And when they delivered it, we're told in Acts chapter 15, verses 30 to 32, they encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. On Paul's second missionary journey, he made a point to return in Acts chapter 15, verse 36, and visit the brothers in every city where he had proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are, check in on them. And Luke says that when Paul went to those cities in Acts chapter 15, verse 41, 16, verse five, that he strengthened the churches, same kind of thing that we see here in our passage. And on Paul's third, third missionary journey, he did exactly the same thing going from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Brothers and sisters, the missionary task, our task as participants in the modern day portion of the Great Commission, is not to simply track conversion statistics or church membership numbers or baptisms. We are to make great efforts to call sinners to repent and to believe. We are to celebrate the conversion of sinners and to baptize new converts into our fellowship. We are to rejoice that they're joining our fellowship or maybe another good church. We are also to take great care in strengthening or establishing or firming up those sinners who have become fellow disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the mentor house, we don't just at dinner time count to see do we have four or more people sitting at the table. We look around and we want to know where's Micah and where's Malachi. It should be the same same in the church. We aren't after numerical increase so much as we are aiming to see sinners converted and to edify our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why we at FBC Diana have a slow and invasive membership process. That's why we urge church members to have more meaningful relationships with one another. That's why we've been minimizing our church schedule and teaching every church member to embrace a more natural and everyday practice of evangelism, to not wait for some event or program to show up. These and many other practices are motivated by love for fellow disciples and a desire to see disciples strengthened, not merely counted. Second, my 2nd subpoint under my first main point, if you're still trying to track with me, is that there is an apparent interplay between tribulation and encouragement to continue throughout the New Testament. And I believe that we, Christians, should expect both tribulation and encouragement to persevere in our everyday Christian living. In verse 22, Luke says that Paul and Barnabas encouraged them, that is, encouraged the disciples there uh, in the towns where they were, to continue in the faith. And Luke tells us that they said that it is through many tribulations we must continue. Enter the kingdom of God. Remember that these Christians were living in the towns that had just exercised overt hostility against Paul and Barnabas, against Christianity in general. And Christianity had no political protections. There is no reason to think that Christians didn't endure all kinds of religious and social and economic affliction. And what is the apostolic encouragement in these towns as Paul and Barnabas go along? Tribulation is going to come. Hang in there. Cling to Jesus. This is what they tell them. And this this sort of talk is common throughout the New Testament. Paul says something very similar in Romans chapter 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation or affliction or distress. Be constant in prayer. Bless those who persecute you, he says. Bless and do not curse them. Jesus himself said in John chapter 16 verse 33... In the world, you will have tribulation, he said to his disciples. But take heart, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. And when the apostle John began his prophetic letter to the seven churches in Asia, the book of Revelation, he introduced himself as your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Notice how these verses that I've just cited... There's also a connection between tribulation or affliction or distress and the call to endure. Just like in our passage, there's the, the acknowledgement, even the warning. Tribulation is what we're going to face, but persevere. Continue in the faith. Hang in there. This has been the same kind of repetition we've seen in these other verses. The Apostle Peter even says later on in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, that it is a gracious thing in the sight of God when you do good and suffer for it with endurance. Now friends, I'm not saying that any Christian in his or her right mind should welcome affliction or distress. I certainly don't. But I am saying that Christians ought to expect tribulation in this world. And Christians ought to prepare themselves to endure tribulation with courage and with hope. Because no one, the Bible teaches us, makes it to the final glorious destination without traveling the hard road of affliction. Look at chapter 14, verse 22 of Acts. Through many tribulations or persecutions or hardships, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, I can't say what shape tribulations or hardships will take in my life or yours, but I can know that we'll face them. How can I and how are you preparing to face them well how are you preparing yourself to face increased hardships with courage and with endurance and how might you help other christians to prepare for such a thing point number two fulfilling the mission and now we're looking at this section uh, verses 23 to 26 but especially focusing in on verse Twenty-three, because 26 is really kind of their, their traveling uh, pathway as they uh, continue to head back home. The mission which Paul and Barnabas had been sent to accomplish was gospel proclamation far beyond anywhere that had heard the gospel before. But the gospel has an effect. It always has an effect. Some people hear the gospel and reject it, as is seen in those folks who persecuted Paul and Barnabas. Sometimes people hear the gospel And they believe it, as is with the sinners who had become disciples in Lystra and Iconium and in Antioch. But conversion is not the only effect of the gospel. In fact, I want to argue that conversion itself, becoming a disciple, means more than just simply positively responding to the gospel. I want to argue this morning that the gospel creates churches. And churches are shaped by the very commission to make disciples, which we've been talking about already. Look with me at verse 23 in Acts chapter 14. As Paul and Barnabas traveled back toward home, they visited the disciples in each of the towns along the way. But in verse 23, the disciples aren't called disciples. Instead, what are they called? Churches. And in each of these churches, Paul and Barnabas either appointed or helped congregations to appoint appoint themselves leaders or elders. And this was the last work which Paul and Barnabas did on their return trip. So that when they arrived back in Antioch of Syria, Luke could say in verse 26 that they had fulfilled work which God and the church in Antioch had sent them out to do. Now, some of you already might be bracing yourselves for what you, uh, you anticipate is coming. And the rest of you may not know me well enough to know what's coming next. But this sort of stuff, ecclesiology, polity is what fuels my tank as a Christian and as a pastor. Uh, I'm not your mom's or your granddad's sort of Baptist. I'm the kind of Baptist that your great, great granddad and grandmother would recognize. I'm the kind of Baptist who knows that Presbyterians weren't the first ones to discover the term elder. And who also knows that there have always been Baptists who believe that every church would do well to have more than one elder. There is so much that we might do to gain understanding and to apply what we're seeing here in our passage this morning. But I'm going to limit myself to two, highlighting two important observations and trying to make application from there. The first is that every church needs elders. And then the second is that elders are appointed to the role or to the office. Let's consider it together. First, Every church needs elders. The Bible teaches us, and our passage affirms today, that you can have a church without elders. Luke called the assemblies or groups of disciples in the towns of Lystra and Iconium and Antioch churches, there in verse 23. Every church. And later on, Paul assigned Titus with the job of appointing elders among the churches of Crete. Yeah, that's in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. But a church without elders is a disordered church, to use the language of Titus 1, or uh, the way that Christian theologians used to talk throughout history. The essence of a church, listen carefully, the words are selected carefully, the essence of a church is its members, those believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ who voluntarily and sincerely covenant together to love Christ and to love one another in the way that Christ has commanded in his word. That's what the essence of a church is. And the signs which Christ has given to local churches as distinguishing marks, the way that the church and the world around knows who is among the membership of the church, are baptism and the Lord's Supper. The mission of the local church is the Great Commission, making disciples, baptizing new converts into the visible kingdom of Christ, and teaching one another to obey all that Christ has commanded. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Now, ultimately, this mission is the responsibility of the church, that is, the collective members from which, uh, which form the whole body. But Christ has given local churches the good gift of shepherd teachers, pastors, elders, so that the members might be equipped for the work of this very ministry. You can read all about this in Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, the church without elders, that is, without qualified men who teach the scriptures without men who explain biblical truth, without elders who help apply God's word, without elders who live as examples of godliness, well, that's a church that is unhealthy, that is disordered, that is deprived of the very means by which Christ has designated his disciples to grow in spiritual maturity. Now, to say it in a more positive way, the church with biblical leadership, with qualified elders, is ordered according to the biblical command, is poised to enjoy greater health and vitality, and is better equipped to persevere in a world that is shot through with sin and error. Brothers and sisters, praise God for the men that Christ has raised up among us to serve as pastors' elders. Pray that God will sustain and grow the men who serve in this role in this church right now, Barry and Brad and Clint and Josh and me, and pray that Christ will make us the kind of church that raises up more qualified men to serve as elders in the future, both of our own church and of others, Lord willing. Friends, if you're not a member of a local church, then you ought to be. The local church is God's method for making disciples. And if you don't understand this, you can ask me about it anytime. I'd love to tell you. If you do understand your need for local church membership and you're looking to join a church, then look for a church that takes this kind of stuff seriously. Your soul can be edified by church with music you don't like, Or a church with a suboptimal building. Or a church that doesn't align with any number of your personal preferences. But your soul will suffer all sorts of loss if you settle for a church family with an unbiblical mission or unbiblical practices. Every church, every Christian needs a church. And every church needs elders. Second observation from especially looking at verse 23 in our passage. But this section is that elders are appointed to the role or to the office. In verse 23, the English translation isn't as clear as the Greek underneath, and the Greek isn't specific on who exactly did the appointing. But let's walk through this a little bit, and let's see if we can gain a little clarity. I I think we can. The English Standard Version and all other modern English translations use the word appoint there in verse 23, whereas the King James uses the word ordain. In either case, they're both a third-person plural, which means they It's that form of the word, but it's not clear if the they that did the appointing or ordaining was Paul and Barnabas or was the they referring to the churches. That's not crystal clear in the grammar and syntax of the text. However, other New Testament passages can help us to know that it is churches themselves who are ultimately responsible for the kind of elders or pastors or teachers they have. For example, Paul warned his young friend Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. That people will not endure sound teaching, but they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions. Now, in the New Testament, the Bible, the, the, the uh, Scripture just doesn't know of any difference between those who teach, lead, oversee in the local church, uh, shepherd, all of these are, are for the same position, for the same role, the same office, and the same task. So when he uses teachers here, don't be confused, He's talking about preaching, teaching, teaching the Bible, applying God's word in the capacity of leading congregations. So what Paul is admonishing or is urging Timothy, warning him about is that congregations would themselves welcome and listen to teachers or preachers that will just tell them what they want to hear. That's what he says is going to happen. And though Paul urged Timothy to have the responsibility of, of charging unqualified men not to teach, First Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, among the church in Ephesus, Paul clearly laid the blame for persistent false teaching on the congregation who paid the salaries and sat under the false teachers, the bad teachers. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 verse 6, for example, now verses 6 to 9, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. The implication is that the congregation was to reject the false gospel and the one preaching it either by pulling that bad preacher or by leaving that false church. The word in our passage translated appoint or ordain gives us even more help, I think, as we try to wrap our heads around what this might have looked like on a practical level. The word literally means to stretch out the hand. And its common use was for the purpose of giving one's vote in an assembly. It's a word that indicates an election or vote by raising hands. Now, if we put all this together, harmonizing the various passages in the New Testament, at least the principles, uh, some of which I've just given brief examples for, and take into account the common usage of the word that Luke used here, then we are likely to see, at least I am, that Baptists didn't invent congregational voting as a way to mimic the democratic process of modern America. In fact, I think there's a good case to be made that the democratic republic form of government actually took some of its principles and practices from congregational church polity. But that's a discussion for a different setting. The point to be made here is that the elders of any local church must be appointed or ordained or set apart or installed, all words that mean basically the same thing, to the office. And the New Testament gives no indication that such an appointment should come from outside of the context of the specific church in which... The elder or elders are to serve. In other words, the elders, pastors, don't appoint themselves. Nor does any other church or organization, such as the denomination or council or association, impose elders, teachers, leaders on any given congregation. Elders are those men who aspire, for Timothy 3 verse 1, to the office. They want to take on this responsibility. They are those men who meet the qualifications for elders laid down in Scripture. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. Those men who are, and they are those men who are appointed or ordained or installed by the members of the church family who submit to their leadership. Brothers and sisters, all of this is to argue that our church leadership and the process by which we have formed and continue to maintain our church government or polity means to be, it intends to be, regulated by Scripture. This is no small point today. We are an elder-led congregational church, not because we think it's practical or more efficient. It's certainly not the most popular form of polity practice today. We are an elder-led congregational church because we're convinced that Christ has instructed us to be so. In our passage this morning, we see the missionary task was for more than simply preaching the gospel, and calling sinners to come out of unbelief and sin. The missionary task, the Great Commission, was and is calling sinners out of the world and into the kingdom of Christ, which is visible in the form of local churches. And it was only after Paul and Barnabas had gone back to these towns where they'd seen sinners converted and organized those disciples as rightly ordered churches with qualified elders pastors that they finally committed those churches to the Lord in whom they had believed, verse 23. And then they left those fledgling churches behind to go back home. This was the completing of the task. Not just seeing people converted, but establishing local churches. And not just local churches of disciples, but rightly ordered churches with biblical leadership. In our own day, we want to continue that mission. We want to preach the gospel with the aim to persuade our own friends and our own family so that they too might come into the visible kingdom of Christ. We want to invest our time and our treasure and our talent in the Christian effort of seeing sinners converted and churches established and strengthened. And We care more about how disciples of Christ and other churches are doing than we care about how many decisions were made for Christ or how many churches were planted last year. And we want to do our part in raising up godly men to lead and to teach and to live as exemplary elders, pastors. May God help us and may he grant much fruit from our efforts. Third and finally, the last point today is celebrating God's work, uh, the work of God together, looking at verses 27 and 28. These last verses, they really provide kind of an end to the story, at least this portion of the Acts story, and a conclusion to the sermon. Notice how there's a continued emphasis on the church-centered nature of the Great Commission. The church plays a central feature, a central role, both in the sending out, in what's being established in the Great Commission, and who celebrates that work when it's done. This is embodied by Paul and Barnabas. And it's also uh, the joyful connection of the church in Syria and Antioch of Syria with all the other churches elsewhere. We, we see this embodied in, in both Paul and Barnabas and in the uh, church in Antioch of Syria. Verse 27 says that they, Paul and Barnabas, arrived back in Antioch, this one of Syria, the one that they had originally left, and the whole church gathered together to hear all that God had done during their time away. And look what Paul look what Timothy, I'm sorry, look what Luke emphasized about the content of Paul's and Barnabas' missionary report. What does Luke say about what Paul told the church when they gathered together? Now, of course, he probably doesn't list everything that was said there. They spent no little time with the disciples, Luke tells us. There was a lot of stuff that they talked about. But what does Luke emphasize in our passage? He tells us that they, Paul and Barnabas, talked about how. God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. That's what Luke emphasized about what Paul and Barnabas said to the church in Antioch when they returned after this missionary journey. Remember that Paul and Barnabas had been chased by a mob. Paul had even been stoned to death, at least left for dead. But this was not the sort of stuff that Luke was interested in recording. Even if they did tell them. Luke tells us that the congregation in Antioch of Syria rejoiced to know that even more Gentiles had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This was the emphasis of the report that they gave. There are more people who had never heard the gospel, who weren't a part of the old covenant people of God, that now, through the Lord Jesus Christ, has been made obvious that God is opening the door of salvation to everybody far and wide who will simply turn from their sin and believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've seen a lot of people do that. And we've seen churches established. Brothers and sisters, I'd like to ask for our own assessment of ourselves today. Are we glad to hear about how other churches in other places are growing because of sinners coming to faith in Jesus Christ? Are you glad when you hear about conversions and other churches growing in other places? Do we celebrate when we hear stories of God's work in other places and in other churches? Are we more interested in the growth of Christ's kingdom in the world than we're interested in the growth of our own kingdom on the corner of 154 and 259? Maybe to put it in a more direct way, are we more interested in the growth of Christ's kingdom in the world than we are in the state of American politics or American culture? When we hear about the hardships that Christians are facing, or when we experience the shift of our own society, which is growing increasingly hostile, antagonistic toward faithful Christianity, do we have enough energy and the perspective to still celebrate the advance of the gospel Even if other aspects of our society are deteriorating? Friends, what does our weekly schedule say about where our primary interests are? What does our family budget say about where our priorities are? What does our daily conversation say about our hope? What does the content of our prayers say about the sort of things that have most of our attention? What anxieties and desires do you most often lift to the Lord? Consider these Christians in the first century Roman Empire. Where was their interest? Where was their hope? Where was their joy? It seems to me that it was in the unfolding plan of redemption. Their participation in that. wherein the God of the universe had made peace with sinners through his son. Their interest was in the missionary effort of proclaiming the good news to others who did not know it or who did not yet believe it. Their hope, their interest, their attention was in the establishment of new churches and in the maturity of new disciples. Consider the Christians who live today in lands that are unwelcoming to the gospel of Christ. Consider the Christians in China who live under a regime of tyranny and total control. Consider the Christians in Afghanistan who face religious opposition unlike anything we've ever experienced. Consider the Christians in Europe who are considered ignorant and backward and foolish among their society. Where is their interest? Where is their hope? Where is their joy? Shouldn't we all, Christians of every nation and ethnicity, set our minds on the transcendent realities of God's world? I think we should. I think we would, do, we would all do really well to focus our attention and our efforts to whatever degree we can and with whatever skill and means we have on the seemingly mundane tasks of talking regularly about the gospel, of encouraging spiritual growth and strength among our fellow church members, of raising up and developing local church elders and praying for and working toward health and growth among other churches until Christ comes and reveals all this stuff as the priority that it's been all along may God help us to be fascinated and interested in the mundane things of slow normal ordinary Christian mission So that we might glorify Christ and thereby participate in something much bigger and grander than anything of this world. Would you bow with me and let's pray again? We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his Son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.